Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with what appears to be the Republican talking point for the 2024 election, which is to convince voters that the American government under Joe Biden has been captured by Marxists and communists, and that cultural Marxism has infiltrated and infected American society in the form of wokeness to the point it threatens the American way of life. We will assess how the new Red Scare Trump is reviving. We'll play with the electorate since Trump's political mentor and lawyer was Roy Cohn, who was at Senator McCarthy's side when there was a communist lurking under every bed in America in the 1950s. Joining us from Canada is Tanner Mirlees, who is a professor of communications and digital media studies at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, whose research focuses on the political economy of digital technology and cultural industries, militarism and media, and work and labor in the digital age. He's the author of a number of books, including most recently Hearts and Minds, U.S. Empire's Culture Industry. Then we'll look into Secretary of State Blinken's visit to Beijing, where he met with the foreign minister, as well as Wang Yi, China's top foreign policy official, finishing up with a 35-minute meeting with Xi Jinping, in which both sides agreed on the need to stabilize U.S.-China relations. Joining us is Andrew Nathan, Professor of Political Science at Columbia University. His teaching and research interests include Chinese politics and foreign policy, the comparative study of political participation and political culture, and human rights. He's the author of a number of books, including The Great Wall and the Empty Fortress and China's Transition, the Tiananmen Papers. Then finally, we'll examine Friday's blistering report from the Department of Justice on racial discrimination and excessive force by Minneapolis police from a probe that began the day after the white police officer was convicted of murdering a black man, George Floyd. Joining us is David Schultz, a professor of political science at Hamline University and the University of Minnesota School of Law. He is the author of 30 books, most recently, American Politics in the Age of Ignorance, Why Lawmakers Choose Belief Over Research. And we will discuss his article at Counterpunch, Policing in Minneapolis and Across Minnesota, What Two Reports Say. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
Joining us now from Canada is Tana Merlis, who is a professor of communications and digital media studies at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, whose research focuses on the political economy of digital technology and cultural industries, militarism and media, and work and labor in the digital age. He's the author of a number of books, including most recently, Hearts and Minds, the U.S. Empire's Culture Industry. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tana Merlis. Thanks so much for uh, having me here today with you, Ian. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us. And on the very day last week that Donald Trump was arrested and arraigned and pled not guilty in a federal court, he told a crowd of his supporters at his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, that President Biden, quote, together with a band of his closest thugs, misfits and Marxists, tried to destroy American democracy. Then he went on to say, if the communists get away with this, it won't stop with me. So you're in Canada, Tanner. Were you aware that the United States government was taken over by Marxists or communists for that matter? It's a huge, huge surprise to me. I mean, this, this is, this is, I must be sort of leading international news, you know, shocking uh, people around the world. I mean, absolutely extraordinary, um, you know, to think of a Marxist coup or a communist coup in the United States. Um, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's unprecedented and, and, and actually uh, impossible. Uh, there's no empirical uh, ground whatsoever for these ludicrous claims uh, made by Trump and, and his, uh, his party acolytes. So why do they believe it? Or as the assumption is it's not just Trump that's using the Marxist canard along with communism. It's also Ted Cruz and Ron DeSantis. So he's not alone, but he's certainly amping it up. So Absolutely. they must think it's working, right? I think so. I mean, I, I think it's important to put this idea of there being a cultural Marxist conspiracy to really rule the United States in a historical context. Um, we can go back earlier and talk about the way the Nazis, for example, talked about cultural Bolshevism, but that, that's another kind of conspiracy theory for another day. But in, in the U.S. context, um, a lot of, of, of pundits and, and, and sort of uh, intellectuals associated with far-right organizations such as uh, the Council of Conservative Citizens, the Free Congress Foundation, uh, the Foundation for Cultural Review, started to drum up fears of, of cultural Marxism, you know, taking over America. So we can go look at this in the 90s. We can even go back earlier and look at some of the ways by which far-right extremist or white supremacist groups were, were using this conspiracy theory uh, in, in the 70s, uh, which actually was, was very much a, an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory to the core. Uh, cultural Marxism was often another sort of code word for uh, a Jewish kind of Bolshevik sort of uh, thing. But um, when we actually go and study this from the 90s forward, we see sort of, you know, this going into the 2000s. Uh, we see, for example, on the cusp of um, Barack Obama's election, Tea Party activists spreading this idea around, uh, demonizing Obama as a cultural Marxist. Uh, I can recall folks like uh, Rush Limbaugh and, and Glenn Beck of Fox News, you know, echoing this idea. Uh, then we see sort of moving up into the sort of Trump election, 
uh, folks like Andrew Breitbart and Steve Bannon of Breitbart News talking about cultural Marxism in America, and also um, you know paleoconservatives like Pat Buchanan, uh, libertarians like Ron Paul, all claiming that America is or on the cusp of being ruled by cultural Marxists. And we, we see this also playing out in, in explicitly sort of white supremacist and white nationalist movements of the alt-right. So folks like Richard Spencer or the neo-Nazi Andrew Anglin, you know, also talking that sort of, you know, cultural Marxism has become a threat to America or the ruling ideology of America and its elite. Um, so this has been part of U.S. political communications by the far extreme right, now very much the mainstream right as well, going back to the 70s. Um, and so I think it's important to historicize that and just understand this as a political communication tactic that has been used for a very long time. But it's a conspiracy theory at the core. You know, it might be effective in mobilizing some conservatives and some right wing Republicans, you know, to Trump uh, and to others like Cruz. But, you know, this is a, a conspiracy theory. It is actually disinformation. Um, and it's actually quite dangerous, I think, to civil discourse and democracy in the United States. Well, we have a very dangerous ex-president who's running again for president, and he seems to have captured the Republican Party so far. He's way ahead of his rivals, and he's defying the rule of law contemptuously and saying that he's going to destroy the deep state, which is another conspiracy. And, of course, he's now attacking Biden as a Marxist and a communist. So is there a is there another iteration now of cultural Marxism, or is it just a follow-on from what you just told us? Or, I mean, I'm thinking about DeSantis using the, the word woke all the time and running against wokeness, whatever that is. Mm. Is wokeness yeah. and Marxism, has that merged? Yeah, they, they, they sort of created an equivalence, right? A sort of semantic convergence between, you know, cultural Marxism, uh, wokeness. Sometimes, you know, you substitute those two words for critical race theory, uh, you know, which, which are all just sort of being turned into epithets to, to attack liberals. Um, not so much actually existing Marxist, socialists, or communists in the United States. But, I mean, it's easy for them to do that. You know, politicians like Donald Trump, um, you know, they, they see sort of this, 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 this transformation of Marxism into an epithet to attack their political opponents or rivals. Um, it, it's quite effective. And it's not surprising, given that Marxism has, you know, for such a long time, been considered the U.S.'s anti-ideology, right? Something that the country really has positioned itself against. Um, going back perhaps to Red Scare 1, to the Cold War, to Red Scare 2, uh, to projecting the idea of the American way of life, uh, you know, at the center of liberal democratic capitalism to the world against uh, variants of communism or Marxism. Um, so, you know, th this history has really um, created a context in which people like Donald Trump can weaponize this idea of cultural Marxism against their opponents and then be sort of um, resonant or, you know, or be affectively appealing to those people that have already been encoded with sort of an anti-Marxist sentiment. They say, oh, they must be a Marxist. They're the people's enemy. They're the enemy of the state. They're the enemy of the country. Um, because Marxism has been vilified for, for you know, more than 100 years in the United States. So, you know, within this historical framework, red baiting is, you know, as American as apple pie in right-wing political communications. And so when these Republican politicians label their opponents cultural Marxist or socialist, they're doing so to demonize or vilify them. You know, it seems that these Republican politicians assume that American voters are already predisposed 
to fear or hate or loathe anyone interested in, you know, philosophies of working class emancipation from capitalism. So by framing their opponents, you know, Democrats and liberals as Marxists or socialists, these Republicans seem to believe that they can dissuade Americans from voting for liberal candidates and rally their support and win votes for conservatives. And, and you know, the sad thing is this. This works to deter a lot of working class, you know, Republicans, a lot of ordinary people from voting for politicians and redistributive policies and public goods that I think could really substantively improve the material conditions of their lives. But, you know, what what sort of Trump and his accolades are doing is basically deterring these people from even considering, you know, moderate liberal or social democratic policies as maybe being in their best interests. Well, it's hardly a coincidence then, surely, Tanner, that Trump's political mentor, his lawyer, Roy Cohn, was also worked closely with Senator Joe McCarthy during the Red Scare. And the Republicans benefited enormously from the Red Scare because they essentially hoisted this canard in the early Cold War when the Russians let off their hydrogen bomb and frightened the hell out of America, that they essentially succeeded, the Republicans, in really damaging the Democratic Party for decades because they shrunk the left in this country by saying that if you were progressive on domestic issues, you were therefore aiding and abetting the foreign enemy, the Soviet Union. And it's led, you know, as I mentioned, the Democrats forever were bending over backwards to prove that they were just as anti-communist as, as the Republicans. And so it's taken a long time to get past that. Uh, so I'm just wondering, though, what the Roy Cohn connection is here. Is Trump sort of channeling Roy Cohn? I think definitely there is a channeling of that, but it's also channeling sort of uh, right-wing extremist groups' conspiracy theories about the nature of power and the locus of power and the identity of power in the United States. And so on the one hand, you have this kind of residual sort of red baiting um, that, that has always, I think, been part of right-wing politics in the United States. Um, but then you also have uh, maybe something more present, which uh, represents the rise of perhaps a neo-fascist or extreme far right, both in the United States and around the world, that is sort of, you know, openly sort of white nationalist and white supremacist and, and openly kind of, you know, playing with and embracing fascist ideology. And so in this particular context, um, you know, it's, it's a real dangerous mix of both historic, you know, anti-Marxism and anti-communism as a political a communication tactic, merging and converging with far-right extremists and neo-Nazi and fascist movements that are also to the core, you know, anti-Marxist and anti-socialist and anti-communist and so on. But I think it's, it's, again, so, so tremendously important to call this out as a ludicrous conspiracy theory. I mean, you know, this, has Trump read, you know, Capital Volume 1? Does, does Trump even really know what sort of historical materialist philosophy or Marxism even is or what it substantively means or the plurality or heterogeneity even debate discussion going on within that particular philosophical and political community historically and at the present time? I mean, I mean, I doubt it. I mean, the Republican politicians like Trump, who talk a lot about this cultural Marxist takeover in America, you know, rely on far right fringe group websites, you know, not 
not experts, you know, not actually existing Marxists. You could always find a few Marxist political economists around the world that could say some very erudite and thoughtful things about what they stand for and why. But I mean, these, you know, Trump's not consulting them. Trump doesn't really seem to have a clue about what actually existing Marxism might entail. So they're not referring to scholarly works on the history of Marxism or democratic socialism or social democracy in the United States or around the world. They're not substantiating any of their claims with, with knowledge, you know, so it's just, it's, it's my opinion, it's a conspiracy theory based on very, very lazy, lazy thinking. Um, but you know, surely, though, just, uh, yeah. Tanner, because we're running out of time, that sure. it's not just Trump that's ignorant about Marxism, the entire American polity and, it, and its population, because, you know, it be, just became something evil during the Cold War, and it became the forbidden fruit, and it's never been analyzed. I mean, in Europe and Canada and other and other countries, where you have you know communist parties in the in the political pantheon, people are, you know everybody knows are communists, and it's no big deal. But here, it's it was so demonized, and it became such the forbidden fruit that uh, the ignorance about Marxism is pervasive. Either, by, so either by the anti-Marxists or by the handful of Marxists that are true believers. So, yeah. you know, just in closing, though, I think it's important to point out that Roy Cohen and Joe McCarthy and the Red Scare never came up with any communists to speak of, but they ruined lots of lives. So how much can this poisonous group of horrible Americans like Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis and Ted Cruz. How much damage can they do? Oh, I think that they already are doing damage because they're turning, um, you know, you know, vast lots of popular sort of opinion against liberals that wouldn't even openly self-identify as Marxist, communist, or socialist. Of course, if you want to go and read about actual socialists in America, you can go look at the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, the Jacobin sort of website, or or other online sources that reflect these tendencies in the United States right now. But there's no empirical ground beneath the claim that Marxists rule the big institutions of American society. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. I mean, are there are there are Marxists at the heights of sort of Washington or the National Security Agency? No. Uh, is Joe Biden sort of, you know, posing as a revolutionary comrade leading a working class revolution? Like, no. Uh, are the big tech companies, it's like Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, Marxist? No. Uh, I mean, universities and colleges? I mean, sure, you're going to find a few Marxist professors every so often, but why wouldn't they? Marx a canonical a political economist that you could read alongside Adam Smith and Ricardo and others. Um, but, you know, most universities have been restructured to serve the labor market exactly agencies of capitalism and also to do R&D for companies. I mean, it's just absolutely bonkers that people could believe cultural Marxists are ruling America today. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever. There's no executive committee presiding over the federal government, the military, the media tech industries, the public and private higher education system, the you know country's dominant ideology that any Marxist would actually identify as substantively Marxist. Um, and, and so, I mean, given that history that, that you've mentioned, right, going back to the Red Scare, even if there was substantial social forces or a party that might be proposing some radical transformation of, of, of the United States, it would be unlikely that the existing security state or the business community would tolerate that. And we'd have actually an exaggerated Red Scare, perhaps part three. And we might be on the cusp of that right now, given what Trump um, and his acolytes are up to. So uh, time will tell. But I think the key the key point here is to sort of consistently call out this as a ludicrous far right conspiracy theory that has no empirical ground and can be easily debunked by anyone, whether Marxist or not, that understands the true nature of power in U.S. society and worldwide today. And it's definitely not Marxists who are in power.
Well, Tanner Marillis, I thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure, Ian. Thanks. I'm happy to chat with you anytime again in the future. And again, I've been speaking with Tanner Mirlis, who is a professor of communications and digital media studies at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology in Canada, whose research focuses on the political economy of digital technology and cultural industries, militarism and media, and work and labor in the digital age. And he's the author of a number of books, including most recently, Hearts and Minds, the U.S. Empire's Culture Industry. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into the visit by Secretary of State Blinken to Beijing, where he met with Xi Jinping, with both sides agreeing on the need to stabilize U.S.-China relations. And in the Bay of Pigs in 1961, Havana for the Playboy and the Cuban Sun, for Castro is the color, is a red or red, those Washington bullets won Castro dead, for Castro is the color, the polar new spray of lead. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Andrew Nathan, a professor of political science at Columbia University. His teaching and research interests include Chinese Politics and Foreign Policy, the Comparative Study of Political Participation and Political Culture and Human Rights. He's the author of a number of books, including The Great Wall and the Empty Fortress and China's Transition, the Tiananmen Papers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Nathan. Thank you very much. So, Andy, what do you make of the trip that Secretary of State Blinken just completed uh, over the weekend, meeting with uh, Xi Jinping on Monday prior to which he met with Wang Li, the, I don't know what he's called, the top diplomat. But there's also, of course, China's uh, foreign minister as well that he met with. So it seems like it was a sort of good guy, bad guy kind of thing where Wang Li and the foreign minister beat up on him in earlier meetings and then he had a nice 35-minute meeting with Xi Jinping. How do you see it? Yeah, well, I've seen the um, American readout on the, visit so far, not the Chinese readouts. Uh, I'm sure that they're a little bit different, but the American readout did, uh, didn't did talk about so much about being beat up by the Chinese side, but talked about the things that Blinken was able to say and some achievements from the meeting, including agreement to have more meetings going forward. In general, the Chinese side, you know, the American side wants the guardrails or the communication mechanisms to avoid a miscalculation. And the Chinese side doesn't trust, well, neither side really trusts the other, but the Chinese side thinks that if they uh, allow guardrails or calming types of things that it just consolidates the American position in Asia, which China wants to challenge. So I think it was... It was a, a useful step forward, but the and perhaps the most important thing was that Blinken was able to emphasize again to the Chinese that the U.S. is not trying to constrain China's growth or prevent China from being, uh, you know, a major power, but but um, just wants China to obey the rules, which are rules that the U.S sets and interprets. So, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's not really solving the problem, but it's uh, better than nothing. Well, it's the first meeting of an American Secretary of State 
in China since uh, 2018. Uh-huh. Well, I hadn't thought of it that way. But yes, these meetings are very hard to get. The Chinese like uh, to show a tough attitude and, and, and indicate that they are willing to take risks, which is really true. They've been willing to take risks under Xi Jinping to expand their global footprint and push back against American policy in Taiwan and the traditional American naval supremacy in the waters that are near to China. So China wants to be tough and the U.S. uh, wants uh, stability. China doesn't really want stability. They want change. Well, apparently there's a planned meeting between Xi Jinping and President Biden in San Francisco in November when the Chinese leader is expected to attend the summit of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Group of Nations. Prior to meeting with Secretary of State Blinken, Xi Jinping met earlier with Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft. So it would have been a (laughs) bit of an insult not to have met with Blinken, right, after meeting with Bill Gates. Mm, I don't quite see it that way. I mean... Uh, The thing is that Gates represents business and China has, under Xi Jinping, has been articulated that they welcome Western investment and Western, you know, business relations, although actually they've been also kind of tough on some Western businesses, whereas, of course, Blinken represents the government. And so these are two different levels. But um, yeah, and, and to some extent, I think, Xi Jinping is trying to divide and rule in that respect to look to the American and in general Western business communities for support to pressure governments to be less, as he sees it, less antagonistic to China. Well, there are subsequent visits, which I imagine Blinken helped arrange in this trip that he just took to China, because I think pretty soon... Uh, Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen will be visiting, and then Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, will be visiting, along with John Kerry, the Special Presidential Envoy on Climate Issues. So it does seem that the repairs are underway. How how do you see it? Yeah, I think all those meetings are going to be useful in... um, you know, communicating on both sides, what are the bottom lines and the issues at stake and so on. I do think it's significant advance. Um, The Chinese like to play this game where they, uh, you know, show themselves to be very tough and, uh, but they do know that uh, meetings are necessary and these are the two great powers right now. They have to communicate and the Chinese know that they're, they have a common interest, as Blinken articulated, and the U.S. has been articulating for a long, long time, the Biden administration policy has always been that we are in a what they call strategic competition, which is different from containment or out-and-out attempt to somehow destroy China. Strategic competition means you know, you do your best, we do our best, we're hoping to stay ahead. And it's a competition of strategic significance because we are the two great powers. But then the Biden administration has always said under that big umbrella, we also have areas where we have to cooperate. Climate is one of them. 
and uh, others include global public health and, and, and the other ones that Blinken listed. So, I mean, it makes sense to the Chinese. They probably would suffer, will suffer more than we will from climate change, though everybody is going to suffer. And um, cooperation in that area is very important to both sides. But that cooperation includes competition within it, say, for example, who's going to get the most profit out of manufacturing, um, you know, new energy vehicles, solar panels and things of that kind, where China, in fact, is in the lead right now. So at their 35-minute meeting in the Great Hall of the People, Secretary of State Blinken and China's leader Xi Jinping hinted at China's grievances. He said state-to-state interactions should always be based on mutual respect and sincerity. I hope that through this visit, Mr. Secretary, you will make more positive contributions to stabilizing China-U.S. relations. And Blinken stressed at the meeting at the meeting, the need for direct engagement and sustained communications at senior levels. So does that mean that the Chinese defense minister will now take calls from Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and also the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Milley will be able to talk to his Chinese counterpart now? Because the Chinese haven't been picking up the phone for some time. Yes. Um, so... I don't know whether it means that because the Chinese Minister of Defense was placed under U.S. sanctions for his um, involvement in selling, I forget exactly what, but um, something to Russia. Um, and so the Chinese side is pretty insulted by those. In general, the Chinese side finds the U.S. use of sanctions to be a violation of international norms of sovereignty. And um, the sanctioning of the Minister of Defense is pretty insulting. Um, so whether specifically the Minister of Defense will pick up the phone, as you know, he refused to have a, a meeting with uh, Secretary Austin, our Secretary of Defense, in the recent meeting in Singapore where defense ministers meet every year. So I don't know if it's going to mean that, but uh, but as you said, probably Biden and Xi Jinping, well, certainly will meet at some point, whether it'll be in San Francisco or at some other point. I, I don't know that that's been nailed down. Meetings between the two heads of government, um, you know, that's the highest level. And of course, Blinken is a very high level as well. And as you said, Kerry Raimondo, Yellen, those meetings will happen, whether it'll happen in the defense. And, and the U.S. has, aside specifically from this Chinese minister of defense, the U.S. has been asking for various military to military communications. And this has been one of the hardest, actually for decades, this has been one of the hardest things for the U.S. to get from the Chinese because the Chinese view it as... Um, an intelligence gathering effort by the United States, as well as a kind of threat by the United States, because we like to show them, <laughs> bring them aboard our aircraft carriers and 
and show them what we have, which I believe is 10 to 20 years advanced from what they have in technology. They they see that as a threat. So um, and they want to show that their military people are, you know, uh, risk acceptant sort of cowboys and that we should hang back. So those that's the hardest type of uh, communication the U.S. has found to establish with China. But I think it was the Chinese defense minister or the head of the military who said that a war with the U.S. over Taiwan would be catastrophic. And the various uh, analysts have suggested that the Chinese uh, hypersonic missiles could sink all of these magnificent U.S. aircraft carriers within minutes. So how does that strike you? That seems like encouraging that the Chinese are pretty realistic. I'm hoping that on the American side, we're also realistic about what a catastrophe a war with China would be. Yeah. I mean, this is a subject of a very intense debate among uh, American China specialists. uh, I'm one who agrees with the line of your question that the Chinese are, uh, however, you know, realistic in the following sense, that they don't think they are ready yet to win a war over Taiwan, and they hope to get control over Taiwan without a war when when they successfully shift the military balance between themselves and the United States so that the U.S. wakes up and gets the message that it cannot afford to interfere when they try to take control over Taiwan. And if that beautiful day arrives, in their opinion, which they think it will, when their uh, posture around Taiwan is so overwhelming and the U.S. one is weakened further because they think the U.S. is a declining power. When that day comes, there won't have to be a war. So I think the kind of message of a war would be catastrophic is not a message from the Chinese that they're going to let up pressure on Taiwan. Instead, it's a measure, it's a, it's a, it's a signal that, um, you know, you Americans need to get the message sooner rather than later that you cannot afford to be in this war. If the Chinese were to sink just one aircraft carrier, we would lose more than double the number of American troops that have been killed in the whole war in Afghanistan. That number in Afghanistan is something under 3,000 U.S. deaths, uh, war deaths. There are five to 7,000 American sailors and other troops on an American aircraft carrier. So I think the vulnerability of those aircraft carriers, which is true, you know, the Chinese see as a, a reason why um, sooner or later the Americans are going to back off from Taiwan. But when you think about how Xi Jinping has changed the trajectory of U.S.-China relations and become much more militant and and he's adopted wolf warrior diplomacy. Had they continued the policies of his predecessors, it would seem to me that they probably could have finally taken Taiwan politically without a war with cooperation with the Kuomintang Party. But after the crackdown in uh, Hong Kong, nobody believes the one China, two systems notion, particularly in Taiwan. So how much do you think Xi Jinping has 
brought this on himself because of his very militant kind of foreign policy and wolf warrior diplomacy, etc. Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think that the Guomindang in Taiwan any longer has the ability to cooperate with the Chinese Communist Party to, quote unquote, solve the Taiwan problem, close quote, because the Guomindang depends, you know, on the voters in Taiwan who are, you know, not willing to unify with mainland China. Um, but I think Xi Jinping, to, to come back to the center of your question, I think Xi Jinping looked at, well, first of all, we have to understand that that the Chinese consider their security position to be very unsatisfactory. They have been and continue to be surrounded by American troops, ships, planes, allies, Japan, South Korea, and other Philippines, and, and, and so-called allies and partners, partners like Singapore and so forth surrounded their their sea lanes of communication where all of their not all but most of their energy resources and raw materials come in and their products go out are basically undefended at this point and and subject to interference by the US and um, Indian uh, French British navies um their their civil their culture their society is penetrated by uh, all kinds of American, um, you know, cultural uh, cultural influences and so on, and and so forth and so on. They're very insecure. And I think when Xi Jinping came to power, he thought, my predecessors have built up the economy and the military to some extent, but they really haven't made significant steps forward in improving our security situation. And we're big enough now to do that. And I think he also perhaps assessed uh, maybe too much the decline of the United States, which was, you know, a reasonable assessment coming out of, honestly, the Obama years. I, I liked a lot about the Obama years, but Obama's uh, uh, posture in Asia was, was pretty weak, his re response to various challenges. You know, he held out the hand of peace, as he said. Uh, to various antagonists, and, and that didn't work out for the United States. I think Xi Jinping thought the Americans, uh, you know, they don't want casualties. Their economy is very slow. Their politics are a mess. Um, on, on our side, we're, we have a lot of assets, so the time is to move. And if you look at what he has achieved in terms of taking control of the South China Sea, bigging up, building up the world's biggest navy, uh, having Chinese ships and planes all around the disputed islands with Japan every day um, and so on, and how he changed the status quo around Taiwan as well, militarily, diplomatically. Um, he has actually, and, and the Belt and Road Initiative, where he's gotten tremendous influence in Africa and Eastern Europe, even Latin America, he has actually advanced the Chinese position a lot by being tough and taking risks without triggering a war. Uh, yes, the wolf warrior diplomacy went a little overboard and has produced a counter reaction. China's 
uh, uh, failure to separate itself from Russia, which is strategically understandable, has cr created some uh, some uh, uh, resistance uh, among the Europeans. The Huawei thing created resistance among the Europeans eventually after the U.S. Uh, did a lot of jawboning with the Europeans over the risks of Huawei. Um, so there has been some pushback, but in general, I think Xi Jinping has, um, you know, advanced the Chinese security agenda, especially in the waters around China. Uh, so I think he, we, but we have a lot of debate over this in the U.S. Does he, do his advisors tell him the truth? Is his military ready to strike? Does he have a deadline to attack Taiwan? So on and so forth. But I share your view that he isn't going to attack Taiwan imminently, but he absolutely is not going to give up uh, the the uh, really imperative for China of getting control over Taiwan eventually. So just in the last minute, though, it seems that the Europeans, the French and the German visits maybe weighed in a little bit and have basically borne fruit with Blinken's trip to Beijing. And they discuss Ukraine. And it seems like China is taking a very interesting position vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Uh, they sponsored this delegation of African leaders that just met in Kiev and in St. Petersburg with Putin. And then what's interesting also is that China's been cultivating the Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin, as though they're sort of interested in a successor to Putin. What do you think, just in the last minute, is going on there? Oh, my. Well, I haven't heard that, a successor to Putin. I mean, that would be pretty dangerous for, for China if Putin, if Putin perceived it that way. Well, I think what's going on there is that the Chinese, um, that, that Russia is a valuable, if China sees the United States as the major security threat to China, which I think they do for good reason, because I think in a sense we are that, um, they, the, Russia is a valuable asset in that effort to counter the United States, weaken the United States posture in the world and so forth. But it's not a very convenient asset because Putin has done something incredibly stupid. And the Chinese are smart enough to see that. So they can't, um, you know, wouldn't behoove them to throw Putin overboard because that would only help the United States. But neither can they really endorse what Putin has done for a number of reasons. First, because it's stupid. Secondly, because it violates the principle of territorial integrity and sovereignty, which is a value, you know, principle that China values because they don't want to be invaded or split up. Um, and because supporting Russia would hurt their relations with a lot of other countries. So they are trying to walk a fine line, and I think walking it pretty successfully so far, which is to um, not, you know, not break sanctions, uh, not split with Putin and side with the other side, which is their enemy, and um, to try to position themselves as pro-peace, which which they are because they would like to see peace. But since peace is not up to China, you know, it's up to Russia and Ukraine. Chinese can't really do much about it, but to just position themselves as pro-peace. Well, Andrew, Nathan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian.
And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Nathan, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University. His teaching and research interests include Chinese politics and foreign policy, the comparative study of political participation and political culture, and human rights. And he's the author of a number of books, including The Great Wall and The Empty Fortress and China's Transition, the Tiananmen Papers. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining Friday's blistering report from the Department of Justice on racial discrimination and excessive force by Minneapolis police. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Schultz, who's a professor of political science at Hamline University and the University of Minnesota School of Law. He's the author of 30 books and various articles on American politics, ethics, election law, and the media, and most recently, Politics in the Age of Ignorance, Why Lawmakers Choose Belief Over Research. And he has an article to counterpunch, Policing in Minneapolis and Across Minnesota, What Two Reports Say. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Schultz. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, on Friday, the Justice Department released a scathing report on the Minneapolis Police Department alleging systemic racial discrimination, excessive force that went unchecked. And of course, all of this is after the George Floyd killing which is extraordinary that they've been able to compile such a record. I'm kind of puzzled just in a general sense, David, why there's so much racism in this northern city. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you expect from the Jim Crow South. Has it gone under the radar? Why Minnesota and why Minneapolis? Okay, so first off, I think you're right. It has gone on the radar, under the radar for a long time, um, and most people have sort of ignored it. Um, that unfortunately, Minneapolis um, and the Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area, but specifically Minneapolis, um, by almost every measure, is one of the most racially has some of the greatest racial disparities across all kinds of ways you could look at it in terms of black-white wealth, income college education, um, high school graduation, home ownership, uh, were absolutely deplorable in terms of it. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. You know, one of them is that historically an incredibly, um, you know, white Caucasian um, state and white Caucasian um, community. And I think for lack of a better answer, um, I think people of color were powerless, were just very powerless when they were at one point, you know, we're looking at five, six, seven percent of the population, um, and and a white majority could essentially um, ignore ignore people of color, and I think that um, ignoring of it has persisted over time. Now the state of Minnesota is about um, still still it's you know eighty two percent white Caucasian. Minneapolis is just about maybe forty or so percent um, um, people of color, um, but, but still um, people of color remain essentially powerless uh, in terms of underrepresentation and all this historical 
um, um, discrimination. I think it's just c- completely compounded the situation. So that maybe not the best answer in the world, uh, but 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 the, but the reality is we 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 are an incredibly um, segregated um, metropolitan area, and the nine minute and twenty nine second video of Derek Chauvin suffocating to death George Floyd three years ago is what finally brought, I think, to the American public's consciousness this problem that several of us, you know, have been trying to point out for at least a quarter of a century. And you point out in in your article, David Schultz, at Counterpunch, policing in Minneapolis and across Minnesota, what two reports say, that Minneapolis is a tale of two cities, by nearly all of these measures, the typical white family in the Twin Cities is doing better than the national average for white families, and the typical black family in the Twin Cities is doing worse than the national average of black families. The median black family in the Twin Cities earns f- just 44% as much as the median white family. So what does the, the DOJ report recommend then? Since it's hard to believe that after the, Lloyd, the George Floyd killing, these practices still persisted. But they do. And, and even something as 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 an example, I pointed out that after George Floyd was murdered, um, chokeholds were banned um, um, in, in Minneapolis. And yet even after him, we still find instances of where it's being used. So we have a lot of disregard for um, for black lives um, in, in people of color and in Minnesota. And I say people of color also because it focuses also on on Native American, indigenous Americans here. Um, a lot of what is focused on here is the fact that there needs to be almost a complete cultural transformation of the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, it points to the fact that there's lack of supervision, lack of training, um, appropriate training, lack of disciplinary action, um, lack of follow-up in terms of, of addressing complaints from the civilian population when there are allegations of police misuse authority. I mean, I mean for, for me to simply say that it's going to take a complete cultural transformation, um, that, that, that is really what the Department of Justice recommends, but it's really saying what? Training, supervision, um, um, leadership, um, maybe I'll even simplify it. It's going to take political will. It's going to take serious political will and commitment to actually address the problems in Minneapolis. And so far, they've been lacking. And what one's hoping now is that Minneapolis is going to be under two consent decrees. Um, There's an earlier one um, at the state level with the Minnesota Department of Human Rights. And now there's this one with this report with the U.S. Justice Department that are going to put um, Minneapolis under essentially court order and an independent observer, independent um, person to basically try to push, to try to um, get them to bring about these changes. But it's not going to be easy. Um, We know from other cities such as, let's say, in Washington, Albuquerque, and others that consent decrees um, don't always work out the way you want. And it really does require the the buy-in from the from the local government and the buy-in from the public to to make these changes. That's that's the challenge we have yet to see. Just one part of the report describes the treatment of African Americans and Native Americans in traffic stops. And it estimates that the Minnesota Police Department stops black people 
at 6.5 times the rate at which they stop white people. And similarly, the Minnesota Police Department stops Native American people at 7.9 times the rate at which they stop white people. So, I mean, that's just one of the many examples. But you would think that after Minneapolis paid out $27 million to the family of George Floyd, that that would restrain them, because that's also happened here in in L.A., where the payouts for police brutality was such that the police department simply had to reform because they were running out of money. Is it happening in Minnesota and Minneapolis? I don't think so yet, because you're right. There was a $27 million payout for him. Prior to that, there was a $20 million payout for an officer who had killed a woman named Justine Diamond, um, allegedly mistaking her for a um, perpetrator. And we've had a couple of other high-profile shootings since then also, um, of which I suspect there'll be big payouts. And this is interesting because starting about 50 years ago, approximately, um, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that municipalities like Minneapolis or L.A. could be held liable for their actions of their officers and that could be required to pay um, for violations of victims' constitutional rights. And I think the whole theory was that if cities keep writing enough checks, at some point they're going to say, we can't keep writing checks anymore, we're going to reform police departments. And what I've become skeptical of, and not to say that it doesn't work occasionally, but what I have found in some of my prior research is that uh, municipalities basically view Um, writing checks as a cost of doing business instead of actually reforming police behavior. For example, um, the city of New York over a 10 year period paid out 1 billion, you know, for the B $1 billion um, for police, police misconduct, essentially a hundred million dollars a year. And I think some cities have decided writing checks are easier. And, and, and so in some situations, maybe, and again, I'm not an expert on LA and maybe you could talk about it, uh, but, for, but I think the idea of simply saying, we're gonna bankrupt cities um, if, they keep, if they keep violating constitutional rights hasn't been successful in terms of really pushing for um, genuine police reform in many cases. Well, your report, uh, which details these payouts, uh, David, from January the 1st, 2010 to December the 31st of 2020, there were a total of 490 incidents that resulted in payouts in Minneapolis and Minnesota. The estimated total payout is $60,784,822. The estimated total payment for Minneapolis was $36,535,708. And that meant for the entire state the mean or average payout per incident was 124500 and for Minneapolis alone, the mean or average payout was 212416 So, you know, you'd think that the local taxpayers would be getting the message. Well, you'd think, and part of the, the report that I did was... To- was after George Floyd was murdered in the city of Minneapolis, wrote that check. And by the way, that, that $60 million does not include the check 
um, to George Floyd, you know, family. So it excluded that because it came outside the time frame. But but after um, F- George Floyd was murdered, I had a bunch of people who called me and said, well, how many cities write how many checks? Um, h- how frequent is all this problem? And I said, it's a good question, because unlike with the FBI, which has like a national uniform crime reports, where we can go look up and find out how many rapes, robberies, murders there were in a year, there is no database at the national level, state level, or in Minnesota that chronicles municipal or government payouts for for um, uh, police misconduct. So it took me two years by filing freedom of information requests across the state to put something together. And the reason why I mentioned this is that I don't think most taxpayers realize how much money um, is being um, taxpayers' dollars is being spent for police misconduct. A couple of years ago, I did again a a a a, a, a quick piece. You know, that, that basically looked at about 15 different major cities in the United States. And I found just with 15 cities, it was two point six billion dollars. My guess is and I, if, we, if we actually had a national database, and we had to collect all for all the payouts. And it's not just for use of force. It's for invasions of privacy. It is for um, driving while, you know, by being a person of color Add all that in together. My guess is we're talking about probably billions, if not tens of billions of dollars that's being paid out of taxpayer money. And I don't think the average taxpayer realizes that. So just in the last minute or so then, David, what is the local reaction then being to the DOJ scathing report? Well, I think clearly for advocates of reform, they're saying, Good. This is a great opportunity for um, now with the, with the city under two different consent decrees to maybe do something. But there's also a lot of skepticism um, that some of the recommendations in the report were recommendations that had, had been surfacing for years and still nothing had happened. So I think there's both optimism and trepidation. And needless to say, um, there are also some um, in the law enforcement community, which are still arguing and saying that this is overblown, um, this is an exaggeration. And so I would simply say at this point that many people were shocked, shocked by the, the, the scathingness of the report. Although go to North Minneapolis, which is where um, most of the African Americans live, and they would say none of this should have surprised anybody. Well, David Schultz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again. And again, I've been speaking with David Schultz, who's a professor of political science at Hamline University and the University of Minnesota School of Law. He's the author of 30 books and various articles on American politics, ethics, election law, and the media. Most recently, American Politics in the Age of Ignorance, Why Lawmakers Choose Belief Over Research. And he has an article at Counterpunch, Policing in Minneapolis and Across Minnesota, what two reports say. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305